many interesting things. It's I so hot out. <laughs> it's so hot. I can't stand it. That's a fair point. And I don't. Well, you have a pool. I don't have a pool. That well, it's not mine. It's the apartment complexes. Still, you have the option. That's true. I also live somewhat near the ocean and enjoy a nice sea breeze. However, today, that sea breeze is not helping, so I can only imagine the, the pain that regular folks are going through in Southern California. Yes, yes, the little people. <laughs> the regular folks. I, uh, people who aren't as hashtag blessed as I am. How, let's say that. <laughs> fair point, fair point. Should we change the title of this episode to uh, Aspiring Blessed? Well, no, I, we don't aspire. You don't really aspire to be blessed, do you? I guess you do. You aspire to be lucky and have the right circumstances come out in your yeah, life. I I aspire to one day be a huge Instagram media mogul. So hashtag blessed. <laughs> hashtag was, all those haters out there. <laughs> you aspire to get a quarter of a million dollars just to promote a a, a fraudulent. Festival on some on some rock in the Caribbean. Yes, that's that's my dream. G- keeping the fire festival alive. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> he got arrested. Did you hear that? Oh, abs- Are you kidding? Of course he did. <laughs> of course it was fraud. Mm. It's amazing because they they worked so fast on normal fraud cases. It takes years to put a case <laughs> together and then kind of slowly usher them out and their lawyers are prepared. And mm. I say this as a huge as an enormous fan of the show American Greed. <laughs> Greg does love American Greed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well we're, with every... Sorry, we're saying that wrong. American Greed. <laughs> You're right. Got to put that Stacy Keach stank on it. <laughs> Tonight on American Greed, Lisa sings Pill Mill. <laughs> Rudy Carniola is a wine merchant. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, we're not. Are we? <laughs> we're, we need to get again. This is Animation Month. Exactly. So we're talking about another crime thriller. As it were. (laughs) Yes, we'll get to that. (laughs) But not in the typical vein. No. This week, we're asking the tough question, who framed Roger Rabbit? Well, you, you said it was a question. There's technically no question mark at the end of the title, so it's not a it's not a question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good point. Poor poor copy editing on their part. This is worse than two weeks' notice. What? <laughs> <laughs> two weeks' notice, the uh, movie with uh, Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant? No, I know of the movie, but what do you mean? It's If you look at the movie poster, it's two weeks' notice, but there's no apostrophe, so it's not possessive. Ah. Yes. <laughs> I've never noticed that. <laughs> and... Um, there's a woman who wrote a book called Each Shoots and Leaves, and she got some notoriety because she made it her mission to put an apostrophe on every single promotional material for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yep. But again, we're, we're off topic. We're, oh, we're not God, here we're to talk about American Greed. It's so hot. It's so hot. It's, we can't focus. That's true. That's true. I hope everyone's enjoying their summer. Because <laughs> we're not. <laughs> but we're here to talk about the Robert Zemeckis classic. This was actually just put in the National Congress, or not Congress, the Smithsonian's National Registry for Film Preservation. Mm-hmm. And don't you think it's worthwhile? Don't you see why? 
because I had seen this movie before. And this is, one of those, that, this is one of those movies that every time I see it, there's extra little tidbits and things to enjoy. I love this movie more and more every time I see it. But Greg, as a first-time viewer, what did you think? So for the second week in a row... <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy. Oh, great. I don't want to sound like an old man like, oh, this, uh, th- this silly shenanigans, they just don't fit with me. This movie really just, just does not fit, does not sit well with me. Hmm. Now, I admire, like again, like Fantasia, which we talked about last week, I love the technical skill behind it. Like, you do, you do genuinely believe that real humans are interacting with cartoon characters. It's incredibly well done. The problem for me is in combining these two genres. It, or the problem with me is combining, basically, Steamboat Willie with Chinatown. <laughs> and somehow those two things, for me, were just uh, oil and water. And while I admire uh, Michael Mike Wolf, the original, the author of the book on which this is based, mm-hmm. for wanting to take these two completely desperate things, and 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 take those two jars of Play-Doh and mash them together, <laughs> while I admire the chutzpah of that, I got to say I found the results really alienating, and really off-putting to me, and I just couldn't get invested in it. See, okay, this is why you're wrong. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, you're right. Uh, the Chinatown reference is obviously very important because the plot is basically Chinatown, but whereas Chinatown is a very kind of is treated as a very neo noir, this instead is a representation of a different kind of style of noir, and in and of itself is a bit of a spoof and a cartoonish representation of that. So that's why so I you thought it. of it as a genre spoof. Yes, but it's spoofing two different genres. It's spoofing the kind of classic Tex Avery, Chuck Jones kind of cartoon shorts that played in the pictures, yeah. but also that kind of 1940s Maltese Falcon, you know, noir, classic noir, as it were. The hard-grizzled detective story. So you admired it for parodying two things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't you think it would have been better if it just focused its attention on one of those? No, because again, it's like a, it's like a three-tiered cake. Well, two tiers, <laughs> technically. But it's like the fact that you can synthesize. One flavor is watermelon, the other is chocolate. <laughs> um, watermelon and chocolate go great together, okay? No, they don't. That's gross. <laughs> you're gross. <laughs> I, okay, you're right. There is. <laughs> it is a bit odd how much death and kind of implied sex that there is in this movie. But yeah, maybe maybe just tonality like if they if they went with either like a a straightforward kids movies with little nods to film noir Mm -hmm. or made it a grown-up movie with just cartoon characters around yeah maybe maybe then i i would found i would find the movie less off-putting but the the combination of the two just or or kind of giving them equal footing it just it's just it's very bizarre to me and well, I don't. And again, I think it's. I think it's just me because obviously people adore this movie. You adore this movie. Yeah. It's now in the Ra- National Registry of Preserved Films because of their cultural significance. But yeah, for some reason, it just didn't hit with me. I, you know, we've we talked about this before, and I hate doing these scurrilous attacks on you, but you <laughs> are very. You care a lot about tone, and you don't like to mix things very much. You like things to kind of be very straightforward. And I think that's the point in this movie's favor is the fact that it, it tries to experiment with that. So you admire the attempt at trying to get these two, this oil and water, mixed up together. Well, yeah, because again, that's why it's kind of the ultimate mixture. It's two different tones. 
It's a contrast. That's why it works. It's See, because no, it, a hard like <laughs> like what is a better uh, pair of foils than a grizzled joyless detective and a Looney Tune? Well, here's, here's a literal Looney Tune. He's a physical. Here's a better. Cartoon. Here's a better. Here's a better example. A better combo: a detective and a Looney Tune that you actually like. Okay. Yes. Because here's the <laughs> yeah. thing: I hated Roger Rabbit, and I did not care if he went to prison or got a safe dropped on his head. Okay. Now I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say, "Oh, that's the point. He's supposed to be annoying." Yes. But how, how about this? How about giving him something else that I can latch onto or invest in emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like, usually you have an annoying character in drama. There's usually some kind of pesos. Pe- pesos. <laughs> they pesos. go to Mexico, get some pesos. <laughs> There's usually some kind of pathos or some something else to kind of get you emotionally involved in their story. Um, now, the, the grizzled detective you mentioned, Eddie Valiant, has that in his former... In his former business... Former brother. <laughs> <laughs> His brother slash business partner, who tragically died in the line of duty. Yeah. That's a great scene, by the way. I do love the scene where we get his whole backstory basically through just looking at the room. It's all set-dressing. Yeah, yeah, and we basically get his entire backstory, how he used to be a cop. He used to ha- own this detective agency with his brother, Theodore, mm-hmm. Teddy and Eddie. Get- so, Teddy and Eddie, yeah. Yep. And then also the fact that they grew up in the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus which also kind of comes into play later on. Mm -hmm. The fact that he wasn't always this kind of joyless drunk. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite shot, too, because it combined uh, a story and thematic purpose with the the entire spectacle of the the whole (laughs) oeuvre that we're in. (laughs) But I think that's also... For lack of a better term. Okay, you can make the point that yeah, the maybe the cartoon aspects and the hard grizzled detective story don't exactly gel, but what the other component that I love about this movie is the screenplay is how I like my bodies tight. <laughs> and you thought it was tight? I thought it was extremely tight. There's not a wasted moment in it. Everything is set up and paid off. Okay, go ahead. And because for... maybe on my first viewing, I missed it. <laughs> like you reminded me, I forgot that he was in the circus because that comes back at the climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should probably explain that Eddie has to entertain these henchmen essentially. So, uh, this is basically my, f- like, fifth viewing of this movie, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I, while I do appreciate a good kind of setup and payoff, sometimes it does kind of come off as a little tortured. <laughs> yeah. So, the uh, bad guy, Judge Doom, has a gang of weasels who are his henchmen, and uh, yeah. they're kind of buffoons, because they're toons. They're mm-hmm. cartoon weasels wearing zoot suits, um, <laughs> and uh, throughout the movie, they're very easily distracted by something that's funny. And Judge Doom makes the point, you know, it's like, be careful or else you'll laugh yourselves to death. Now, did he say that earlier or was that just in the climax? Um, He said that at least six times throughout the movie, it felt like. (laughs) He says that in the bar scene. He definitely says that before the climax in the movie. Uh, One of the weasels mentions it when they try to shake down Eddie Valiant in his apartment. You know, it's like it's at least three times. Okay. So again, in the climax, the reason why we're set up with the fact that he used to be in a vaudeville show is so Eddie can distract and kill the weasels with laughter. He starts doing his kind of tumbling. He starts doing his little like song and dance routine, and all the weasels laugh themselves to death. Yeah. Now, if that had come up earlier, maybe. Mm. Like well, if they were again, it's in the picture. Other than just the newspaper clipping. Yeah. Like, 
because it was so it's so weird seeing you know throughout the whole performance bob hoskins who plays eddie valiant mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the great so bob Hop- and... hoskins Ugh, god rest yeah, well, he's a he's a British bulldog, <laughs> and I would have appreciated if we got like one hint of that because now suddenly the, to see him do all these kind of silly gags in the in the climax, I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> Whereas early, like my mind wasn't going back to those newspaper clippings. It wasn't going back to the four or five, four or five times that he said that you're going to laugh yourselves to death. Mm-hmm. Like I missed those connections on this first viewing, so maybe I do need to see it again. Well, maybe you're not paying attention, Greg. No, maybe I was distracted by all that's going, all the weird alienating colors that are going around. <laughs> See, I think the colors are actually pretty muted because one of the things, like obviously we've seen. Well, they're contrasting and muted. It's very weird. Well, that's the thing. So we've definitely seen animated characters in a live action setting before. This goes back to like the 1960s with like Mary yeah. Poppins and those Disney movies. We saw it last week in Fantasia. There's exactly. One little scene where he shakes hands with Mickey Mouse. Well, that's just a silhouette. That's really not anything. <laughs> oh, that. Oh, that doesn't require a lot of skill, John. You could do it. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not that complicated. Okay. And what I think this movie does better than anything, even the Great Space Jam, is that <laughs> this movie tries so hard to make these cartoons interact with physical space. That's true. Like, the uh, perfect example is the hideaway scene in the bar. So in the bar, there's this little hideaway scene where there's this little hideaway hole during the Prohibition days that this bar needed. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to hide Roger Rabbit in there because, again, he's been framed. And so there's this gag where Bob Hoskins, Eddie Valiant, keeps hitting his head against the lamp. And so the lamp keeps swinging back and forth. It's this repeated gag. But mm-hmm. because of this in post, because Roger Rabbit is there, the light has to keep changing on him as well. So the lighting keeps changing on Robert, Roger Rabbit, and his shadow keeps moving. Again, it's beautiful attention to detail. That almost killed me! Oh, boy, what is this? Some kind of a secret room? It's a rot gut room. Holdover from Prohibition. Oh, I get it. A speakeasy, a gin mill, a hooch parlor. Tools are up here, Eddie. Look at this. It's a fire hole. Jimmy's, Eddie, this would be a great place to hide. What is your tooth? What's your head? You said you'd never take another toothpaste. What'd you have to change your heart? Nothing's changed. Somebody's made a patsy out of me, and I'm going to find out why. taking your hand out of that cuff at any time no not at any time only when it was funny absolutely like that that's what kind of stuck out to me was the quality of the animation Mm -hmm. done by the great richard williams not not really a household name but he is one of the greatest animators to have ever lived Mm -hmm. and the the amount of lighting and texture that goes on to these onto these animated characters was incredible you're right about the animated i i really admired the little things like um they reveal that 
Roger's wife, Jessica Rabbit, is having an affair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and by having an affair, I mean playing patty cake. <laughs> yeah, so you think it's kind of a straightforward, he's taking pictures of them, but you don't really see what they're doing. And then later when it's revealed the pictures, they were actually playing patty cake together, and Roger's flipping through them, and it becomes like a little flip book as they clap their hands together. Yeah, so like, yeah, those are the physical, yeah, the fi- he's holding the physical picture. Later, he's, hol- he's physically holding a bottle of liquor. Mm-hmm. I think there's another moment where uh, someone's uh, a cartoon character is like holding a physical cigar, like that. That yeah, that's like, really that's me. Baby Huey. Another yeah, kind baby of Huey, excuse me, fun touch. Um, baby Huey is a co-star with Roger Rabbit, and he's a baby, but he's been doing this for years, so he's a 50 year old basically. Yeah. So and he talks like you know the classic. <laughs> I think at one point he has a line. He has a 50 year old's lust with a three year old dinky. So <laughs> yeah. You're right. There's a little weird kind of adult humor in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because the inciting incident is actually a one of these comedy shorts. Um, it's baby who is playing like just a typical baby. It's not, it's not a gruff, <laughs> gravel voice, the womanizer. <laughs> yep. And Roger is tasked with babysitting him. Exactly. But it's the very, baby, it's very Tom, uh, Tom and Jerry. It is very Tom and Jerry, but it's also. There's also, like, so much dimensionality to it as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's portrayed with these huge, like, kind of wide-angle lenses, and the camera, like, zooms in and out. Like, it... And to me, like, although it took a, a massive amount of skill, like, it made me pine for just the, the flat, you know, painted backdrop and Bugs Bunny kind of dancing around in the foreground. That's... It, it was so complicated. Again, I'm an old man at heart. <laughs> But just the energy, like, the energy, like, I wish the movie, like, slowed down for a second. Why? Why? I don't know. Maybe, maybe just because, again, I wanted to, like, emotionally attach to something, and because the movie moves at a mile a minute, hmm. like, I just want I really wanted to just slow down, like, uh, again, have that nice little scene like we did where the camera pans around to uh, Eddie Valiant's backstory with all these newspaper clippings, you know, it goes up, now it's daytime, his liquor bottle's now empty. Hmm. Like those are the moments I really, I really attach to. But there are there aren't really moments like that in the movie. Well, okay. So the the opening scene I think is very important because to understand parody, you need to understand the mechanisms of how these things work. And uh, so that is a perfect. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> that is kind of a pitch perfect example of a cartoon that would play at before a movie at the time. Again, it's extremely yeah. Tom and Jerry, and it's extremely well done and extremely. Uh, Again, you could totally picture that short being done, or yeah. like just playing. And again, the big reveal is at the end is Roger Rabbit ruins the take. The director comes out, who is a human, and is basically like, "Cut, cut! We got to do it again. I wanted stars, not birds." You know. <laughs> so again, it 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 kind of throws you off base. It kind of like thinks that you're in this other world, and it turns out you're in something else. And again, adding another layer to this delicious cake, you know, there's also a Hollywood satire element. The fact that, you know, these cartoons are actually actors and they actually have to, like, participate and perform these scenes. And we get another great scene later on where Eddie Valiant is leaving the studio and, you know, there's these cows lined up. They're auditioning for a, a cow part. And it's all these different animated cows animated in very different styles from very different eras all competing for the same part. Like, just, there's so many fun little yeah, side Yeah, the kids like will love that. that. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Again, you can have stuff for the adults. You can have stuff for the kids. Anyone can enjoy it, okay? It doesn't have to be consistently one thing. 
No, it, it, not that it has to be consistently one thing. It's trying to serve everyone and pleasing nobody. It's That's pleasing it's everybody. Called. I'm pleased. Okay. The U.S. You're government right. is pleased. Here. Yeah, exactly. You're always the fuddy-duddy's like, no. Uh, uh, my fuddy-duddiness really came out <laughs> when they actually go to Toontown. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> they do, I, again to kind of really get uh, create that contrast they do at one point have to go to where the actual tunes live yes and they do end up in toontown which is very bright very jarring and very, very extreme wacky. yeah <laughs> and we do get a lot of like gags where bob hopkins is like being tossed around and treated like an actual tune like huckleberry hound in the elevator mm-hmm. is that huckleberry hound i don't know yeah uh i can't remember yeah. no no, wait, Huckleberry Hound is blue. Never mind, that's yes. a Hanna-Barbera character. Yeah. It's this the hound a, who talks like Truman Brothers, Capote. I think. Yeah, it's the hound who talks like Truman Capote. Like, yeah. yes, <laughs> next floor. You know, that guy. Yeah, why was he being a dick? <laughs> Cause that's, go to the next floor. Because that's who he is. That's his character. Like a passive-aggressive dick- dickishness? Yeah. <laughs> At least Bugs Bunny, when he hands them, like, oh, I have a spare. Like, they're falling. Mm-hmm. He and, he and uh, uh, Mickey Mouse. Oh, we should probably mention this seminal moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The only time we've ever seen Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse together on screen, the two titans of cartoon industry, to, uh, basically to pray to play a prank <laughs> on a poor, confused old man. <laughs> I felt like we could have done more of that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure the Disney Corporation had some complaints. <laughs> Don't make Maybe. Mickey mean spirited. That's true. <laughs> have have the rabbit do it. <laughs> Well, this movie was made by Disney. I'm surprised they didn't do more with Mickey. I guess that's true, yeah. Well, again, they wanted to be on brand. They can't have Mickey be embroiled in this murder plot. <laughs> no, so he does nothing. <laughs> that's on brand for Mickey. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I hated I hated this sequence for the same reasons that I dislike a lot of other things in the film. Is that it's it's jarring, it's overly energetic and alienating, mm. and it's it seems like you you agree in that respect, especially for the Toontown segment. I totally yeah. agree, but I think it is important again to capture that contrast. We do have to actually see because again they've they've talked about it in dialogue, and we have to kind of know what the stakes are. They're trying to tear down Toontown so they can. Again, getting back to that satire, build a freeway, and again. Well, yeah, like to for the Chinatown connection, it's it starts with a a personal story that expands to a grander conspiracy. Mm-hmm. In Chinatown, it's about water rights. This is actually this refers to an old conspiracy wherein uh, Ford, GM, and the big automakers bought the tram system that was in LA to basically dismantle it and create freeways and make it a car-based town. Mm-hmm. So early on in the movie, we get to see you know, the great public transit that L.A. has. Eddie Valiant is able to, you know, get to wherever he needs to go, even though he doesn't have a car. 
Yeah, with a lot of ironic gags, like, you know, L.A. has the best public transportation system in the world. <laughs> and then they, when... they announce plans to build a freeway, like, there'll be no more traffic ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When Judge Doom reveals his plan, you know, they look at him like he's crazy, like, a freeway? People won't stand for that. A freeway yeah. in L.A.? Come on. <laughs> Come on, I think that's kind of clever. No, that, that was clever. Again, that's an ironic gag pitched to the adults. Mm-hmm. And there is, and you're right, there's a lot of irony to this movie, but... It, you might be making a good point is like is this going over the kids heads too much but personally i think that's okay because again sometimes that just makes it better with age because i mean oh so now it's now it's designed to work like 30 years down the line is that what you're saying yeah okay i think this movie has kind of a timeless quality because again it's not meant to take place in the 80s it's meant to take place in 1947 again yeah, it's and... spoofing something very specific and you're right the production value does hold up 30 years later yeah i was gonna say the toontown sequence although I, I didn't like the sequence in general i did really admire he's in a he's in a cartoon cab mm-hmm. benny the cab and he's yeah and, and he's spinning around and and that all genuinely looks great yeah the way that humans and tombs interact in this movie is extremely well done yeah and the fact that they, <laughs> again it goes without saying <laughs> exactly and again like the fact that they made the effort to like go for it and not kind of skip any corners. Like again, we talked about the weasels earlier. The weasels all use real guns. That's so true. Oh, yeah, every, yeah, and every scene that the weasels are kind of like trying to look find Roger Rabbit or shake someone down, they're pointing a real physical gun. I believe in the when they were actually filming it, they'd use like these kind of robotic arms and these puppets, and they would just put the cartoons over them in post. Yeah, and it's clear you couldn't use a real physical person <laughs> to kind of shadow over that. So. Yes. No green screen, folks. No, nope. not like today. <laughs> no, blue blue screen though. Oh, that's true. <laughs> proved proved uh, proven matte technology that they've been using since uh, the the thief of Baghdad, <laughs> since the since since when this movie takes place in the forties. Yeah. So there's one slight continuity error I noticed. <laughs> Go ahead. There's everything wrong with Roger Rabbit. Rabbit. Five minutes or less. <laughs> um, Judge Doom and his weasels are trying to find Roger Rabbit in the bar. Mm-hmm. And there's one drunk in particular that Eddie Valiant is sure is going to have loose lips. And so you think that he's going to give Roger Rabbit up. He says, yeah, I know Rabbit. He's been around here all day. And then he kind of throws his hand around an empty stool and goes, hey, Harvey, why don't you talk to the judge over here? Making a reference to the James Stewart film, Harvey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jimmy, as his friends called him, John Jimmy. <laughs> Harvey came out in 1950. This movie takes place in 1947. <laughs> Busted! <laughs> John, you find something new every day, including something to something to despise. <laughs> I hate this movie. This movie's bullshit now. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe he was, maybe he was the character on which Harvey was based. Oh, there you go. Maybe that's yeah. it. They should have yeah, had. See, it. now I'm defending this movie. <laughs> They should have had the screenwriter in the bar. It's like, an invisible rabbit named Harvey. Hmm. <laughs> they could have made it like Back to the Future. Yep. Which was also directed by this guy, Robert Zemeckis. So can we talk about that? <sighs> so we need to talk about Robert Zemeckis and his weird... Why? Why? Uh, he, this is his second movie of a trilogy where he tries to downplay the experiences of black people in America. <laughs> I really miss this one. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this, shall we? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not going to contribute anything to this one. 
<laughs> so Robert Imagine Zemeckis... Like how Robert Zemeckis thinks that black people contributed nothing to <laughs> history without the help of white people. Exactly. So going back to Back to the Future, you have Marty McFly kind of interacting with people from the 1950s, and you see a lot of kind of like uh, touchstones of the civil rights movement or um, black art kind of created because of Marty McFly. Yeah, you see, like, well, the gag is that he's affecting the future Mm -hmm. by interacting with 1950s. But what you find on closer examination is how much of it involves the enfranchisement of black people. Exactly. He comments, he sees that there's the mayor in town who's a black man in 1985. He goes back to 1955 and see that he's a he's a janitor in the local soda shop. Mm-hmm. And he makes and he the comment, him, like, "I know you. You're the mayor." And that's the first time it clicks in his head, like, "Hey, I can be mayor." Mm-hmm. And then there's the the fact that he plays Johnny B. Good later in the movie, and his <laughs> cousin Harvey picks up the phone, calls Chuck, and be like, "You should listen to this." Yeah. So Chuck Berry obviously got the inspiration for Johnny B. Good from a white teenager from the '80s. Mm-hmm. And so with Roger Rabbit, we're talking about L.A. in the 1940s and the fact that there's where normal people live and then there's Toontown. (laughs) And Toontown is a section of town that is thought of to be disposable. They're trying to get rid of it, move it out. And you can kind of make a connection. Oh, this is like segregation. (laughs) But again, we're not talking black people. We're talking cartoons. It's okay. Yeah. And, yeah, then, I, and then he directed Forrest Gump, which, oh boy, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. <laughs> but it's okay, John. Flight had a black star. <laughs> a drunk coke addict. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's funny you mentioned that because my first interpretation of this was actually um, Toons representative of, of, of Judaism and anti-Semitism, actually. Okay, explain. <laughs> maybe maybe just because, again, they're sequestered, they're ghettoized, and, or they're sequestered to a particular ghetto of town. Mm-hmm. Maybe the fact that they're entertainers. <laughs> I don't want to say that the Jews control entertainment or anything like that, but because culturally they're very good at entertainment, they're, they're kind of in that field. Mm-hmm. Got it. Just, uh, so here's, my, here's one more shovelful <laughs> to dig myself deeper. <laughs> but also the, the prejudice they face. Hmm. That's that's where I kind of came the, the that they're the fact that they're prejudicial against tunes, particularly Eddie Valent. I thought that that, that to me clicks something about anti-Semitism during the era. Mm-hmm. And maybe today, maybe today, as evidenced by what I just <laughs> by the generalizations I just made. Can I can I bring up something at the ending that I missed also? Yeah. The big twist in the movie is that they're the main villain. Well, we need to talk. Yeah, we need to talk about Judge Doom. Played by yeah, the great Christopher The main Lloyd. twist is that, well, he's prejudicial towards tunes, and the big twist is that he is a tune himself. Mm-hmm. And not only that, he also has a personal history with Eddie Valiant. Yeah, that too. That, I felt, came out of nowhere, and just basically to invest us more in killing the villain. It felt like, it felt like in Batman when it's revealed that, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's revealed that the Joker is the one, before yeah. he became the Joker, he killed uh, Bruce Wayne's parents. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, and again, it's like it goes back to that whole, like, the screenplay is very tight. There's no wasted moment. Everything's kind of set up and payoffed. But also, sometimes I can feel very tortured. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like, oh, this is the tune that killed his brother. By killing him, he's avenging his brother. It, it feels like a way too contrived. It, it is contrived. Because, again, like, if they, if maybe that was another plot line, like, I still have to find my brother's killer. Yeah. And that connected to the mystery somehow. Exactly. 
the like greater maybe, conspiracy yeah. about building a freeway and getting rid of the public transportation system. Mm-hmm. Like maybe, but the, yeah, it's just it's kind of a missed opportunity. And again, I didn't know, like I missed the irony of him being a tune. Like obviously, obviously, there's some irony there. But what what was the ultimate point? Again, I really feel like the only point was so that he can have that personal victory. Not only does he save so the that day. Was it. Yes, I feel like you the, said this was the tightest movie ever. I didn't say it was the tightest movie ever. I just said the screenplay is very tight. <laughs> Again, it's tight, I, but far from perfect. How about that? <laughs> fine. Yes, it's not a perfect movie. You win. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> but you know you see a lot of screenplays do this. You see a lot of screenwriters do this. You know, in the last James Bond movie, Blofeld and James Bond are foster brothers for crying out loud. Yeah. You know, it's like. You can't just have a hero save the day. He also has to have a personal victory or a personal stake in things. Yeah, that's the thing that makes dramatic storytelling, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not better, but trying to make it richer and the stakes higher. Yeah. And um, so I, I no, I understand it, but... Exactly. Like, but it's like, was again, it necessary? Like it no. That yeah, could, that... It doesn't. It didn't hit home with me. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like another demerit to this movie. Again, like this. Oh, this silly cartoon didn't didn't follow exact screenplay logic. I know, I, I know, I've gotten possible standards, but <laughs> I don't think it's a demerit. I just think it's extra bloat that wasn't necessary. It's just fat that could have been trimmed. Okay. Again, your words. You said it was very tight, but it is very tight. <laughs> the fact it. Okay, so at one point, uh, act, oh, uh, very tight with about ten percent body fat. Oh, <laughs> uh, come on, give it some credit. Maybe five percent. Come on. <laughs> For example, uh, at one point, the head of the Acme Corporation, because you know Acme's going to make an appearance, uh, gets murdered. And he gets murdered in his warehouse. And so when they're at the warehouse, they're messing around with a bunch of his kind of stuff. And the, you know, you get a few little sight gags like this, but it's important because in the finale, all those tools that we've been set up to see before are going to be used in the finale. Yeah, I I wish those were a little bit more clever though. Because mm. oh. again, oh. I'm, excuse I'm... me, it wasn't clever enough for Greg. <laughs> well, because we get that sight gag where there's a mallet that actually has a punch glove in it, mm-hmm. and we see it like for literally four seconds. I'm gonna count the frames. <laughs> four seconds in that first scene in the warehouse, and at the climax, and at the same warehouse, it, it comes up again. He tries to use it to fight off Judge Doom, but he misses. Yep, and he hits the nozzle to the to the dip, and then oh, yeah, he and then he gets right there, melted yeah. in the dip. But again, it wasn't. I don't know. I wish I wish it was planned. Maybe 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 my standards are too high. Well, it was planned because again they set it up earlier in the movie. I, I don't again, know if it just fell out of the crate during the finale and it was like, oh okay, this thing just happens to conveniently be here, it would feel too much like a Deus Ex Machina. Well, I would have. I actually wouldn't have minded that. <laughs> oh, sorry. We're, sorry, we have to achieve realism in our film noir slash cartoon parody. But you have to know that we the, can't have a Deus Ex Machina. But again, the joke is the fact that it's a mallet, but it has a punching glove in it. I know, but what, I, it just doesn't work. What? What, I, what are you looking for? That's what I don't understand. I'm looking for James Cameron level setup and payoff. <laughs> okay, give me a James Cameron level setup and payoff. I'm thinking the loader in Aliens. That's the same thing. No, it's not. Yes, you it know what is. it does. No, it, you know what it does. It, initially, when the loader is brought up, it's to prove that Sigourney Weaver's character is tough. That that seems to be the point of that scene. And then when it comes back later, she's got to demonstrate that toughness again in fighting off the Queen Alien. So it serves it serves a dual purpose. It's Whereas just this, so we I'm can not... see it at the beginning, so we can have it for the finale. That's all I saw it as. Okay. 
Well, I wanted more. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to sum up. I, I wanted more out of you, Roger Rabbit. I wanted you to be less annoying. <laughs> Why can't you just say that's your major criticism? Roger Rabbit's annoying. I get it. <laughs> that's okay. Just like, yeah, I guess we didn't mention Roger Rabbit because he's not he's not in a whole lot of the movie, is he? Um. Well, no, because again, he's kind of a MacGuffin for like the kind of latter like Act Two. Because again, he gets kidnapped at one point. Yeah, and Eddie. Valley well, he's also to... in hiding for a lot of the movie too. Exactly. So, and, and maybe right. it was a restriction, like a production restriction, where he's he's obviously doing the most interaction with human characters, and so they can't, they obviously can't have the movie be wall to wall. Otherwise, it would be a hundred million dollar mm-hmm. plus budget and take twelve years to make. <laughs> exactly. And, but you're right. He is annoying, you know, purposefully because again, he's supposed to be bugging Eddie Valiant the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Again, very clever scene. They eventually get handcuffed together. Classic movie trope. <laughs> yep. And as Eddie... oh, this scene, I, yeah, this scene I did like too, and it's the it's the best laugh in the movie. Mm-hmm. Eddie Valiant is trying to saw the uh, handcuffs off, and then but the table is wobbly. So <laughs> Roger slips out of the handcuffs, holds the table steady, and you know Eddie realizes you could have taken yourself out the whole time, and he admits no, only when it was funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that works. Mm-hmm. There, there's that one moment together where uh, if you see that first contrast, but again, there's the rest of the way. There's no, there's nothing else to Roger Rabbit other than his annoying characteristics. So, well, again, he's meant to act as a foil, not just to Eddie, but also his wife Jessica. Yeah, but there's, it, it's got to be more than that. It can't just be, it can't just be the contrast. Like, what's the purpose of that contrast? Uh, what do you mean? That's it's dramatic conflict. That's the purpose of the contrast. You no, have cause, foils. No, because so Roger can... Rabbit doesn't learn anything at the end of the... Is he just the catalyst to make uh, <laughs> Eddie Valiant care about tunes again? Yeah. Because Eddie Valiant's oh, the it. main okay, character. That's it. Yeah, Eddie Valiant's the main character, not Roger Rabbit. Oh, so Roger Rabbit doesn't have to do anything or learn anything or go through an arc. Okay. He's a cartoon. What do you want? <laughs> I wanted more. <laughs> you want Roger Rabbit to give a nice speech at the end? Like, oh, yes. please, can't we just all get along? <laughs> yes, that, that'd be perfect. Greg, again, he's a physical manifestation of a cartoon. You think he needs to learn a lesson? You think he needs to have, like, deeper characterization? Yes. yes. Why? Han Solo learned something <laughs> at the end of Star Wars. He's not the main character. Because he's a real person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's, it's it's so because it's a cartoon, it's excused. It yes. doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know. Uh, fine, enjoy enjoy your sugar. Enjoy your garbage. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> enjoy your junk food. I wanted something a little richer out of this movie. There's nothing wrong it. with a little comfort food. I know you're you're right, but this movie's too much. It was too much for me. I felt uh, I felt geez. sick kind of watching it. Just uh, the uh, I'm an old man. <laughs> this movie had too many colors in it. <laughs> All you have to do is your straw man attacks. You, you yeah. can't you can't beat me in my logic. Yeah, <laughs> because again, you're in the minority here. That's true. I, I just don't understand why you, you love your movies so joyless and boring. <laughs> Not joyless. <laughs> just proper. Just properly done. Oh, just proper. Yeah. Again, this is a movie that's very properly done. We have foils. We have setups and callbacks. It's like, this is good. You know, screenwriting 101. I, I don't know. Exactly 101. I want course 201. Oh, jeez. I want advanced. Oh, jeez. <laughs> You're right, Greg's not expecting too much from what is ostensibly a kid's movie. Oh, is it a kid's movie, John? Because there are sex gags and murder. <laughs> Again, the mishmash of tone. Okay, not a kid's movie, a family movie. 
there's something for the yeah. whole family to enjoy. Yeah. Like when the when Christopher Lloyd melts. <laughs> or has daggers shoot out we of haven't, eyes. We haven't talked about Christopher Lloyd. How great is he is in this movie? Oh, he's he's excellent. Yeah. He's fantastic. Well, I, I wish I wish he had a little bit more of that manic energy. He's kind of he's a little reserved as Judge Doom. Well, I think that's the point is the fact that he, well, no, yeah, you're right. He he's trying. He's trying. He's a. It's a facade. He's yeah. a cartoon trying to be a man. So obviously, he's plays it very stiff. He plays it very rigid. Very kind of like menacing. Yeah. So you have to wait till the end to play his really <laughs> exactly his his doc his that trademark Doc Brown energy. Yeah. Once it's revealed he's a tr- tune, that's when he goes crazy. Yeah. And he puts on that high-pitched squeal of a voice. Mm-hmm. Which I'm assuming was done in post. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also loved when he's flattened out. That's that's also one of the most impressive uh, effects in the movie, is uh, the kind of puppet, the puppetry of um, he's flattened out and um, the way he physically kind of moves is incredible. That's, that's another big check in the pro column there. Do you think they achieved that with a stop motion? When he kind of like no, gets I up think I was physical pup. No, I think I was physical. Well, no, when puppetry. he peels off the ground, that's physical puppetry. But when he actually gets up, flattened, and goes over to the helium tank to blow himself up again. No, I think that is physical puppetry too. You think so? It yeah, like stop motion. But no, I didn't see any of the jerkiness. Maybe we'll double check on the. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you've seen this movie only once, and obviously yeah. you haven't appreciated all the fine details. So. <laughs> Yeah, this is like Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. It's richer on subsequent viewings. (laughs) Holy smoke, he's a tomb! Surprise! Not really. That lame brain freeway idea could only be cooked up by a tomb. Not just a I can't explain why I found this movie so off-putting, and you can't articulate why you love it so much. What are you talking about? I've already explained my points. Fine attention to detail, great special mm. effects, good screenplay, yeah. something for everyone to enjoy. The kids fine, like the cartoons. Great special effects, fine screenplay, bad characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because characterization is what you go for when you're watching a noir movie. Oh, oh, so it doesn't matter. No, I'm just saying, like, why are your expectations so high? Because this film went into the National Registry of Preserved Films. <laughs> expectations should be high. Oh, jeez. Have you looked at the list of the movies that are included in that? <laughs> Go ahead. Which ones don't you think should be included? I'm just saying, like, not everything has to be, like... Again, like, what... I just don't understand why you think every movie needs to, like, live up to this, like... Again, what is your benchmark? Because we're observing classics, it it has to uh, reach that classic benchmark. But not every classic needs, like, you know, deep, richer character development. I want it to, though. <laughs> Again, do you, snob, Back to the Fu- to do you think Back to the Future is a classic? Yes. All right, where's the deep characterization in that one? Uh, Marty learns <laughs> not to be a jerk. <laughs> Sometimes you can just have a good time, Greg, at the movies. 
I didn't have a good time here, though. Oh, jeez. I was nauseated by it. Oh, jeez. I, I guess that's the conclusion. Folks, I just can't help him. I don't know what to do. I just don't know. I just don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry I didn't have a good time. I'm, so, I'm sorry I'm such a party pooper. <laughs> but, John, maybe we can get to something where... Spotlight. Uh, <laughs> Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. You so rudely interrupted me. <laughs> you know, we always just, like, do a labored, like, transition. I just wanted to jump right into it. Okay. John, what do you have for Spotlight? Or should we spotlight the movie we just watched? Or save that for another day? No, I think we should do it now. Because okay. I think by the next time we do an R&R, it's going to be too long. Uh, baby Driver, Baby Driver. <laughs> baby Driver, Baby Driver. I loved Baby Driver. <laughs> Everybody loved Baby Driver. Um. Okay, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It's a fine movie. Yeah, we should we should say the, the I think the critical praise is uh, a, a tad hyperbolic, a little overblown. Yeah, um, there's no doubt that Edgar Wright is a brilliant filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Again, that attention to detail, the fact that he meticulously plans everything out. Um, I think screen everything from the editing, production design, costumes, like it all comes together. I think screenplay wise, he still has some things to learn. <laughs> Um, you just said that so condescendingly. <laughs> <laughs> There's some things that young whippersnapper can learn <laughs> from my experience. Okay, fine, 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 fine. He just needs to edit himself a little more, a little bit more. Let's just say that. Yeah, you're right. Could maybe go through one more rewrite. And well, I think it, our favorite movies of his, he, his co, his co-writer is Simon Pegg, and I think he contributes a lot to the way that the way the stories play out. Maybe the the fact, well, the fact that their genre pastiches helps. Mm-hmm. Because you come in with certain expectations. Um, this is this is a great action movie, but I think in the latter half, yeah, it kind of transitions to a crime movie, and it doesn't work as well when it does that. Well, again, yeah, it has a great understanding of the genre it's trying to be, but it's not parodying it or trying to do anything more than that, which is why I think it feels a little, not empty, but just less of an achievement. Yeah. I mean, I, it's great. it's great as an action film. Just the way everything's set up, all the all the shots and editing are perfect. It's great as a tense crime film at times. Eh, that's <laughs> that, I think that's where we'll we'll differ. Okay. Because I think I think it's a fine crime film or like a regular crime film. Like he said, he he was inspired by movies of the '70s, like The Driver, and I think The Friends of Eddie Coyle, and other like kind of more muted crime dramas here. Mm-hmm. Which uh, definitely this is muted at times. Yeah, and so like yeah, it. Again, tone-wise, because I love tone, <laughs> it doesn't work with the action silliness that comes earlier. Exactly. In fact, I'll just spoil this. There isn't a big car chase in the latter half of the movie. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> there is kind of a chase, and it does kind of go on interminably, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, this movie's final act goes on for, like, way too long. <laughs> yeah. Which is definitely a problem with some of his movies. And it's strange because in Hot Fuzz, his second collaboration with Simon Pegg, like, that's part of the joke. You know, by the third hostage situation, he has to defuse. He just goes, oh, pack it in already! <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> and it goes on another 20 minutes after that. Exactly. <laughs> this movie somewhat has the same problem. Mm. It, well, it's also, uh, that part of that's also the way characters kind of change. Yeah. Because one character, I'll just say one villain we see is a little more sympathetic to our hero, mm-hmm. who's uh, named Baby. Um, that flips. 
as another I guess character. we really haven't explained the plot yet, have we? No, we haven't. <laughs> I guess not. The movie centers around a character named Baby. He's a getaway driver. Baby was in an accident when he was younger, and it caused him to have really bad tinnitus. Because And he lost both his parents in this accident, so now he's been passed around in the foster system. Kind of entered through a life of crime. And because he was in a car accident, he basically developed this great skill for jacking cars and getting away. So he's become this uh, getaway driver for this mob boss played by Kevin Spacey. This crime lord, Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. And because of his tinnitus, he always has earbuds in his ears, always playing music. So yeah. the great kind and of... And sets his getaway, his getaway drives to music. That's the great spectacle of the movie, is all these very elaborately choreographed getaway uh, car chases set perfectly to music. And again, it's played for gags. There's times where he has to like restart the song or rewind because he missed the mark. <laughs> yeah, he he plays, he sings along the opening scene. He sings along to the song, even though it's a tense robbery scene. <laughs> He's singing along and jamming to the song in the car. Yep. Again, setting it, he knows that it's going to take three minutes thirty seconds. Let me put on my favorite song. That's exactly three minutes and thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not just his driving ability. It's also he has great physicality because of his kind of love of music. He's also kind of like, he has this grace of a dancer and he's also able to, you know, not just get away in a car, he's also able to slip away on foot quite frequently throughout the movie. But um, he falls in love, Ron, John. Oh, jeez. The one thing a criminal can never do. Nope. The second your heart's in the game, you're out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he falls in love with a waitress named Deborah, and he's trying to get out of this life of crime. He's too sweet for it. His name is Baby for crying out loud. Yeah. But as much as he tries to get out, they keep reeling him back in. And so, unfortunately, Deborah also gets wrapped up in this life of crime. Yes. One last job becomes a, a life-and-death struggle. Mm-hmm. And we get uh, great turns by John Hamm and Jamie Foxx as kind of mm-hmm. cohorts. Yeah. I think Jamie Foxx is kind of the unsung hero of the movie, just because he's, he's being a, a bit of a loose cannon. Yeah, he's playing the kind of psychopath, I guess. Like he's... Well, but there's something more to him too. Uh, yeah, they do kind of take the time to characterize yeah. him a little bit because it's a lot talkier in the latter half, and that's an opportunity to kind of characterize these guys. So that's what I wanted to mention. Going back to the whole kind of crime thriller thing, and the reason why it doesn't 100% work in those moments is because it felt too much like imitation Quentin Tarantino, which he's I think gra- you're right. Yeah, he's great at that you know, filling those kind of tense moments with lots of dialogue so you never get bored. And you can see him trying to do that, but it never quite gels. It never quite gets to that level, so... Mm. No, maybe because we know there's another hour of the movie left. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and also, the movie felt so light and airy earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had That's this really hyperactive about, yeah. energy at the beginning that when it slows down, it just kind of feels a little off. So, yeah, it's that oil and water again. Like, earlier, we were having a great time with these car chases. Nobody's getting hurt. And now, oh, suddenly we flip a switch. Now people are going are supposed to get hurt, you know? Mm, people are, you know, blood has been spilled. So, yeah, yeah, it kind of loses that. <sighs> okay, the other thing I wanted to talk about is I was listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. But, John, why are you mentioning other podcasts? This is the only <laughs> podcast people need to listen to. You're right, to. you're right, you're right. But he, uh, one of the commentators brought up an interesting idea. And... I wanted to see if he thought this was a fair criticism, because okay. he makes a good point. Wouldn't the movie had been way more interesting if Baby had been cast with a black actor? Uh, probably. Yeah. 
Because again, I mean, I, I don't know. It's like also, like, <laughs> would it be better if it were made on the moon? Like, I, can't, <laughs> like, I, I can't, you know. Yeah, I can't set my. I can't dissociate my mind. I can only look at the what's on the screen here. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point, and that's why I wanted to just bring it up because again, I wanted to get your thoughts. But again, you. <laughs> If it were set in space, yeah, on Zacular Five, baby, that's a sequel. Baby Driver in space, <laughs> because a lot of the music in this, the music is very eclectic, but a lot of it is very Motown. A lot of it's kind of like classic seventies, and it's interesting that a white guy would be interested in this movie. He also yeah. has a black foster father, so yeah, I, who's played by who's deaf in the movie and played by a real deaf actor, mm-hmm. which is great casting, exactly. And also, and he's take, a very expressive actor too, which is perfect. And it takes place in Atlanta. Come on. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe casting a black actor would have made it a little richer. Maybe like out of that secret spice, that secret ingredient that really. Yeah, but I, I again, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It, <laughs> I can only judge what I saw. It's it, yeah, it's a weird criticism because it's like yeah, that does make sense, but also it's like you can't. It's hard to criticize a movie on what it should have done. Yeah. Although I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think that's part. That is part of criticism, but like casting a, a whole new actor, like that, that's kind of a bridge too far. Mm. Fair point. Like maybe like writing, like maybe in the planning stages, but yeah, like I don't know, like actually like being there. I I gotta say, like that's my favorite. The fact that they they shot on film, so it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that there's no green screen or anything, you're really seeing like physically seeing cars and people physically in cars. Mm-hmm. Like it adds a lot to. It adds a lot to the kind of quality production. Yeah, it's a meticulous... Quality production value. It's a meticulously crafted movie, which is Edgar mm-hmm. Wright's whole shtick. Yeah. is the fact that he deeply cares, and again, like, every scene and shot, like, panning or tracking shot is, you know, planned out perfectly. But again, like, story-wise, it's just not all the way there. Yeah. But it's still a fine movie. I think definitely worth Oh, yeah, highly recommended. Yeah, still recommend yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Redbox... See it in That's the what theater. I was thinking too. Like we paid, uh, not to turn this into a consumer reports, but <laughs> <laughs> we paid thirteen dollars, and granted, enjoyed a really nice, well conditioned, well upholstered, air conditioned theater. They were recliners. They had these recliners. You could just lay back. Oh, they were so nice. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, you don't have to rush out to the theater to see it. Yeah, not like Transformers. <laughs> no. Dark That's of the suspected. Last Night Fallen. <laughs> yeah. What 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 one are we on? Now? Revenge of the Last Night Fallen. Oh, okay. Revenge of the Last Night Fallen. Got it. Colon Dark of the Moon. <laughs> Got it. That's a spectacle for the ages. Yes. That's something you gotta rush out to the theaters. Get to your multiplexes. See the latest Michael Bay joint. I should probably Again, our our general impression, good film. Yes. Thumbs up. Trademark Ebert Company <laughs> Associates. <laughs> But Greg, do you think that our listeners could take Facebook, a- <laughs> <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> iTunes, ratings, Stitcher, uh, 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 Apple Podcasts? No, oh, sorry, uh, Apple Podcasts, ratings, Stitcher, do it all. Come on, subscribe. <laughs> it's so hot here. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of hot, what are we watching next week, John? Next week we are watching the seminal Miyazaki film. Princess Mononoke. Is this the seminal Miyazaki film? Uh, uh, I mean, that's the one who put him on the radar for moi, but, you know. Okay. I guess, yeah. Everyone loves Spirited Away. 
Jump. It's like the third highest grossing film in Japanese box office history. Okay, <laughs> wait, okay, hold on. Are you, compared to like what? Frozen? Come on, that's not fair. Uh, yes, Titanic and Frozen and Avatar are also in the top five. Okay, fine. <sighs> Japanese culture. When would I think your name? I think that kind of broached the top five or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's been a huge success. We'll watch that. We'll get to that one later. I, I, tr- I tried watching that one in the theaters, but, you know, they only had one dubbed playing a day, and I was just like, I'm not reading subtitles. Gross. <laughs> I don't watch yeah. stuff to read. <laughs> you and I, uh, that'll be a good episode, because you and I have a complicated relationship with anime, or Japanimation, <laughs> as the fans call it. What all the cool otakus call it, right? Yeah. Am I cool, guys? Am I hip? Am I hip to the lingo? <laughs> I waited five hours in the anime con line. <laughs> Worth it. <laughs> oh, we spend too much time on the internet. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, and until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs>